Your website may be pretty, it may look great, but have you ever wondered, is it actually smart? Frankly, it might not be all that smart if it's delivering wrong answers when people search for information. This is where Yext Answers come in. Yext Answers adds a powerful search engine to your website so your customers get an official answer to every question, not just a load of links to ads. And that means that you can drive more transactions and reduce your support costs. The best part is it's free to try. All you have to do is go to yext.co.uk slash campaign and learn more about how Yext Answers can help your website have beauty and brains the whole package. Yext.co.uk slash campaign. Hello and welcome to the Campaign Podcast, your weekly window into what's going on in the UK advertising industry. I am Omar Oakes, Campaign's Media and Technology Editor. And I'm Brittany Kiefer, Campaign's Creativity and Culture Editor. Later in this episode, you can hear my interview with Mediacom's Sue Uniman and the journalist Mark Edwards, who have co-authored a book called Belonging, a guide to transforming and maintaining diversity in the workplace. We talk about the particular issues that creative industries such as ours might have in bringing about this change that so many people are crying out for and what practical steps people working in the ad industry should take to make things better but first Brittany um good to have you on the show again uh where does lockdown find you I'm asking that as if we're not working from home every day yeah shockingly I'm in my bedroom again Ah, is is that your is that your regular uh, workspace while you're working from home? The bedroom. I I alternate between my bedroom and the living room. So today I've come in into here for some quiet. Good, and um, as they always say, soft furnishings good for audio recording. Um, so what's been going on, Brittany? Um, we had some we're recording this on Tuesday afternoon, and we had some big news in the ad industry that we broke yesterday. Is that ASDA, the supermarket retailer, obviously is reviewing its ad accounts um, currently held by Abbott Mead Vickers BBDO, the Omnicom ad agency. Brittany, can you give us some insight into why they've called this review and what it means for AMV? Well, I can't say it's a huge surprise because it it's not long after their um, chief customer officer, Anna Marie Shaw, left the job. Um, and it just sounds like there's a lot of change happening there. They're under new management. Um, Walmart sold a stake in, in October. Um, they've, yeah, there's just been a lot of upheaval there. It's been a difficult year, I think for a lot of businesses, but for AMV, it's really bad news. Um, they, they've held the account since 2018 and they've had like a lot of other agencies, 2020 really hit them. And they, yeah, it's a big account to lose. So we'll have to see what happens there. Yeah, um, of course, supermarket um, brands are huge spenders in terms of advertising in the UK. Um, as to obviously one of the big four, as we like to call them, alongside Sainsbury's, Tesco, uh, Morrison's. And it's had an interesting recent history, this Asda ad account, because um, AMV BBDO won it in 2018 and it was previously held by Saatchi and Saatchi. And um, I remember Saatchi and Saatchi, they um, in, won it in interesting circumstances themselves. I think this is going back to 2015, 2016, uh, when it was a, a shock that um, VCCP, which was the agency that had it before Saatchi and Saatchi got a phone mm. call one day and were told, uh, sorry, you've um, you've lost this ad account. We're going into publicist group and with Saatchi and Saatchi. Um, and this is obviously a huge blow because these supermarket advertisers are not only big spenders, but they do so many of these big brand campaigns. Um, I mean, they do kind of the, the Christmas ads and all the rest of it. So uh, definitely there are going to be lots of agencies who don't already have a supermarket mm. going for this one, Asda, I suppose. And um, of course, Brittany, we discussed some that Asda ads recently on the podcast, or rather last year. Um, Sonny and his family have been the stars of their recent marketing activity. Are you, <laughs> are you a fan of Sonny and his activities? No, I really am not. I think they're pretty poor ads. Um, I'm not sure how effective they are in terms of driving sales or customers, but I think creatively they're very poor. Um, and they've, I think that they've you know like when I speak to people in the industry other creatives 
they seem to have a pretty strong reaction against them. But in defense of AMV, I would like to say, like, I don't think anyone wants to make bad work. I think um, there are so many talented people at AMV, and perhaps it says says more about um, the client and what they're looking for and what they're hoping to achieve um, and maybe not being willing to take big creative risk. I don't know. I'm just speculating. Yeah. What I want to know is what happened to James Martin? I thought James Martin, um, the celebrity chef, was supposed to be their brand spokesman. And that was one thing about um, what happens when it went to Saatchi and Saatchi. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm dredging up ancient history now, aren't I? But um, I think effectively <laughs> James Martin came as part of the deal. And I'm not sure yeah. how much uh, how much influence the ad agency had and whether they were using him or not. So it's a good example of what you were just saying in terms of how much control these clients have and sometimes mm. the ad agency has to take it right so we shall see uh, moving on let's talk about some of the big ad campaigns we've seen this week and we were looking at what's been going live over the last few days and we've, we've there are two brands in particular um, that we wanted to talk about sort of together one is Oatly and one is Quorn because they're both vegan-tastic. It's, of course, veganuary for people who practice that particular religion. <laughs> Is um, it a religion? <laughs> firstly, Oatly. Let's hear a quick clip. What have we here? Cow's milk. Really? Now, this was created in-house. They didn't use an ad agency, which is anathema to many people listening to this, but they <laughs> did. Uh, it was created by the credits, say, the Oatly Department of Mind Control. Um, these ads show um, fathers as their teenage children try to coax them out of drinking cow's milk. And the, the, the ad I saw was a very depressed man saying, I hate my life because his daughter won't um, buy him some actual milk. Uh, directed by Tom Spears through Smuggler. Uh, it aired during the voice on ITV on the weekend and media by PhD. Brittany, what do you think about this by Oatly? Well, I think it's their first TV ad campaign and traditionally they've done they've done some outdoor stuff, they've done digital. Um, they their packaging works pretty hard for them. I think they're a really interesting brand. I actually met them a couple of years ago in Cannes, back when we used to travel and go places. Um, the two of the leaders of the department for mind control or whatever they call it were speaking there and I didn't realize I just assumed it was a new brand but they'd been a while around for a while and they used to be more of like a um kind of seen as like a health food brand like they would just be primarily found in health food stores and the packaging at the time was really dull and not inspiring I think it was kind of like a dark blackish um color and they revamped all of that they have do you buy oatly or do you ever see it in the shops the packages are very eye-catching um i'm an i'm an alpro i take alpro have you know okay fair enough um but oatly's has um some really entertaining copywriting even just on the cartons um so that kind of helped revamp the brand and then um they did some more interesting advertising but they were, I just remember they were very adamant that they didn't need an agency and they didn't think the agency models were, were working. Why? Um, I'm trying to remember exactly what they said, but it was a lot to do with um, like this kind of hierarchical uh, structure of um, someone writing copy, for example, and someone else approving it and... Um, they said kind of this process that goes into the agency gets in the way of creating good ideas. I think that's kind of a Swedish mindset. Like Oatly is a Swedish brand and um, Swedish people, uh, well, the society is kind of more flat. Like um, there's not, they don't really value hierarchy a lot. I I went to Sweden on a um, work trip to write a feature once and a lot of people told me that. So I think that's kind of um, a common mindset that you find in creatives and, and innovators there. Um, I happened to go to Sweden twice 
uh, on family business on in 2019 and um, I can tell you the 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 cliche about um, Swedish people putting their face to the sky when they're in the bus stop is absolutely true I've seen it <laughs> I've seen it um, it's interesting uh, so Oatly as part of this campaign they've created a website uh, which children can use to chat with older generations about the impact of animal-based products and the environment. Those precocious kids and what they get up to. Um, before we, um, I just want to bring in this next ad by Quorn and then we'll talk about these two ad campaigns together. So let's have a quick clip of Quorn. Uh, this is their new ad campaign in the first work by Adam and Eve DDB, that ad agency, Quorn. I love a bit of mammoth. I'm generally a meat guy. But these corn fillets are well tasty. Plus, eating them could help save the planet in 40,000 years' time. I've just swapped the meat out for corn. And I'm having a corn taco. And it's great! Now, uh, this, this ad campaign features meat eaters, including a cavewoman who enjoys a bit of mammoth. And there's a rather... Um, interesting venus flytrap character which decides to go meat free for the kids uh this also launched over the weekend during itv's the masked singer uh it was created by nat potter ben stillitz sorry for the pronunciation and colin booth at adam ddb and directed by gary friedman for independent media by initiative um so this is the first work by adam and eve uh what does this what do you think about this Brit? well i think it's interesting to compare the two and kind of who they might be speaking to so just to go back to oatly they're specifically targeting middle-aged men or more likely they're targeting people who might be influencing those men's lifestyle so like it's about teenagers who are trying to get their dads to switch to a plant-based lifestyle and supposedly Oatly did a survey that found middle-aged men were the least likely group to adopt that that diet um and corn is more um you know they have these kind of tropes of like the type of people who you think of being big meat eaters like well a cave woman or an older man and um and it seems to be maybe have a wider appeal, but both of the brands are using humor, which I think is important because the ad, you know, an ad that is preachy and speaks to you about um, trying to change something really significant in your lifestyle, I don't think would work very well. Um, but what do you think about them? Oh, about Oatly speaking to middle-aged men and dads. <laughs> are you suggesting that I'm <laughs> as a? No, I'm not suggesting you're middle-aged, but. You are a dad. <laughs> uh, well, I suppose if I live to be 90 years and I'm 36, then I am in the middle third of my life. Anyway, um, <laughs> I, well, I mean, it's well, I I've as I said, I do take Alpro. I have been trying to drink less milk and eat less meat for, for many years now, uh, stri- uh, primarily because of environmental concerns. We talked a lot about um, the environment in last week's episode. And I think there are various rational reasons to to why you should be eating less dairy and meat. But as you say, appealing to people through humour is definitely probably a a way to cut through. But it's definitely a way to get awareness. But I wonder if it's actually a way to create greater brand loyalty. But I guess these these two brands are probably, I'm not completely sure about Oatly versus Danone and other substitutes but i suppose these are both market leaders in their field so what they're trying to do is actually um it's a responsibility to have to create awareness for the the product instead of the brand um because that the market's Mm. at that stage of maturity so that's what they're doing um you know i I think that i think they're really well-made ads i just um it's it's kind of for me it feels like quite transactional i'm not an expert on different brands and i'm kind of wondering well you know what what differentiates this one from the other one yeah that's a good point actually is um i don't particularly have i've bought both brands but i don't have a lot of brand loyalty to either one of them and to me oatly is kind of interchangeable with uh alpro or alpro makes milk right <laughs> see there you go like i don't even know you know i just pick it up in the shop and um so maybe yeah they need to work hard to distinguish each of those brands yeah if if you were in the shop and you know they're all the same aisle and one was on discount and the other was full price you're probably going to try the one that's on discount aren't you 
Whereas, you know, whereas I'm very particular about my coffee and I'm not going to buy, I shouldn't say the name of the brand that I definitely wouldn't buy, but I'm not, you, listener, you know what I'm talking about. You know that one that you you buy for the office, but you wouldn't buy, you wouldn't buy (laughs) when you're working from home, that, that one. I'm not going to buy that one just because it's always cheaper. I'm going to, I'm going to spend a bit more on the more expensive one, which is another point, particularly when people are working from home and they're going to continue to work from home for a while. Mm -hmm. People are going to spend a little bit more on these consumer products in terms of these brands. And so um, they're not going to go for the cheaper option. So brand loyalty is going to be even more important. I think it's going to be an interesting year for that in terms of how, the lockdown and things could be opening up or at least coming to some sort of new normal where we just kind of just get on with it and hopefully ad spend goes up to reflect that um mm. the this 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 grab for brand loyalty is going to be really important um let's move on to the world of insurance <laughs> this is beagle Exciting. street insurance and it's another first this one is the first work by creature of London, uh, the first TV campaign by this agency. Let's have a quick listen. Let's take our feet down Beagle Street. Oh, the people that we'll meet. We'll pop up here and drop in on Roy, settling in with his new baby boy. Life insurance, he thought, whilst given a fright, and a hundred pound voucher he received with delight. But these late nights must have him feeling less wise as he spent it on a... All the links to these ads, you can actually see what we're talking about, are of course going to be in the show notes and they're going to link to the work stories we have on campaignlive.co.uk. And as you'll see, uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's, a model, it's a model town that they've created. Brittany, explain what's going on here. Well, I was impressed because this is a brand that I would normally think might just turn out kind of a uh, dull or like not very memorable ad, Um, but it's a nice bit of craft here. And um, the model maker who worked on it, his name is Andy Gent. He's also worked on a lot of Wes Anderson's films, including Isle of Dogs and his brilliant movie. Yeah. And his upcoming film, I think it's called The French Dispatch. He's worked on that as well. Um, and he created all the models here. I think there's a lot of really nice details and it's celebrating these kind of small life moments that are very relatable but feel big at the time. And uh, I, I heard or I was told that there were some charming stories kind of that went into the making of the ad like that inspired the characters in it. And one of them was a man who has the word quiche tattooed on his arm <laughs> and kind of commemorating his nan's cooking. Um, so I, I liked that detail. And I also love quiche. So maybe we should consider <laughs> that tattoo. Well, you know what? Um, in my limited understanding of cooking, quiches aren't that easy to make at home. So mm-hmm. um, big up that man's nan for, for <laughs> making those at home. Um, so yeah, this is um, by Creature. It was created by Josh Dando and Stephen Dodd. Directed by Noah Harris through Agile Films and media planning and by Wavemaker. Um, so it's interesting because this ad is essentially like a lot of insurance ads is what we call direct response where they want the um, the viewer to do something as after watching this particular ad. Um, but it's done in a very different way where it's almost like they've created this, this whole world, this fantasy model village full of fantastical residents. It really plays to what we've been speaking about a lot last year and, uh, you know, again on last week's episode about this the performance and brands really coming together and it's interesting with um just a quick word about itv and channel 4 they both unveiled towards the end of last year big grand plans to get more revenue through digital and a big way they're going to try and do that is through their their on-demand platforms uh, itv hub and all four and you can start to see if there is more tv advertising being served where they can target more people and have more sophisticated targeting um you're gonna see potentially a lot more direct response ad like these actually kind of the there's the potential for more brand and purposeful messaging to come in through there um so just just an interesting just in the context of where these things might be going uh so maybe you know we, we started off by saying you know insurance brand oh exciting well actually you know if they, if they can do more interesting things with the direct response things that they want to do perhaps they could be more exciting yeah but Brittany, do you know what the best do you know what the best thing about this ad is what it's voiced over by none other than paul barber 
who, as I'm sure you know, <laughs> played Denzel in Only Fools and Horses. I didn't know that, but let's chalk that up to my American heritage. So you're not an Only Fools fan? Did that? Did that? Did they? Did that not go over to NBC or CBS? <laughs> it didn't make it across the pond, as they say, but. Um, should I check it out? Uh, you should absolutely check it out. I think this is an important part of um, B- British heritage, and um, uh, um, I know um, you are you're a, you're you're a, you're a citizen now, or, or whatever we call you're a subject of the Queen now. I'm not. I'm not <laughs> quite a citizen. <laughs> but, um, I, I think I think the back catalogue of David Jason should be among um, some of the questions you get asked. But um, that's just my personal opinion. Okay, yeah. good to know. Uh, <laughs> there are, are there any more ads, Brittany, that are worthy of um, your 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 mentions this week? Oh, I just wanted to give out uh, give a shout out to um, Asu, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, which is an Asu. <laughs> it's an apple cider vinegar brand owned by Ms. Can, and this is the first work for the brand by Wonderhood Studios, which won Ms. Can's advertising account last year. Um, So again, this is a brand that I think, well, the product generally is usually marketed for its health benefits, and they're trying to make this brand kind of more modern lifestyle brand um did you say a light a lifestyle vinegar brand sort of yeah like it take like it's kind of more like a fashion ad um so it's trying to appeal to people who are not just you know drinking apple cider vinegar every day for its health benefits but maybe maybe more like the kind of customer who would buy a brand like oatly um that's my interpretation of it and also uh, apple cider vinegar is uh notoriously doesn't taste very well but Asu apparently won there did you know there's a great taste awards what for what for for vinegar <laughs> not just for vinegar um but they for their vinegar they they got a three-star rating from the great taste awards oh. which is apparently the highest accolade they give out um so this is a vinegar that tastes good as well as being beneficial to your health apparently uh. um and i liked it because so it, it kind of appeals to anyone who's interested in Japanese culture. It was shot in the Tokyo area. Um, there's a lot of you know good locations and the costumes are great. And but it stars three older Japanese people who are all in their nineties. Wow. And advertising is kind of notorious for perpetuating ageist attitudes. I would say traditionally, you know, that's been a problem. So it's it's cool to see three older people taking the spotlight in this ad yeah definitely are these um yeah i i just assumed that this is when you said vinegar is something that you put on your chips but this is actually something that people are drinking every day as part of like a health routine some people do yeah um but it can also be used in like you know in cooking or in uh well those are the only two uses i can think of but maybe i'm not very educated on apple cider vinegar um i use it to make salad dressings so i guess that's one use as well Okay, I assume you could do cleaning and other things with it. Uh, so yes, this was um, this was created by Wonderhood. Um, the uh, the work was created by Ads Dishow again. Hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. And Phil Lebrun, uh, and directed by Luke Yam Picker through Cutter Studios. Bountiful Cow did the media. Um, so uh, and Ads and Phil, we should say, are one of our faces to watch. Ah, go ads and fill. And so they did this. So they did this in Japan. I mean, how have they managed to do this when everyone's working at home? Well, they've had this idea for a while. And actually, it was something they were planning to do before the COVID-19 pandemic. And then for obvious reasons, it got delayed because, you know, not great timing to go to Japan and film uh, older people (laughs) when there's a pandemic breaking out. But um, they the team actually shot it remotely so they well they worked with a production company based in Tokyo to create it and they and a local stylist to kind of cast and create the wardrobes and the locations and everything um but Wonderhood just got up at strange hours and uh watched the film remotely which is how a lot of shoots are happening these days actually like the sets are much smaller um, there's fewer people there and they're watching it on a live stream and giving their feedback that way mm. 
Interesting indeed. Okay. Um, as I say, all the links to the work are in the show notes and, of course, on the work section on campaignlive.co.uk where you can read about some of the big stories. We talked about Asda. You can also read my interview with Dentsu's Amanda Morrissey, uh, who is running, uh, she's the global president of iProspect, and we talked about how iProspect is going to um, take over Visium, the media agency, as part of its uh consolidation uh, Dentsu doing lots of work to simplify its business across the world uh, and lots of other stories uh, but now thank you very much Brittany and Brittany um, what's what's on your agenda for the rest of the, the week and the month going forward? Oh well uh, what's on my agenda? Um, I've written a feature for the February issue about neurodiversity so I'm looking forward to that coming out um, and yeah, just generally hopefully seeing some more new work. It's been a slightly slow start to the month. Yes, uh, we talked about it a bit a bit last week, didn't we, in terms of where all the travel ads, for example. But I do wonder, as I say, whether as we, we begin to emerge from our living rooms and bedrooms, whether that will change. So that remains to be seen. But um, thank you very much, Brittany. Until next time. Thank you. See ya. And I'm joined here today by Sue Uniman and Mark Edwards. Regular campaign readers will know Sue well. She is Chief Transformation Officer at Mediacom, the WPP media agency, and still the largest media agency in the UK. She's a regular campaign columnist and leading voice about media planning and advertising strategy, as well as one of the industry's most vocal advocates for diversity and inclusion. In 2016, she co-authored the best-selling book, The Glass Wall, with Catherine Jacob, the chief executive of cinema ad sales company Perlin Dean. Now, she and Catherine have teamed up with a new title called Belonging, the key to transforming and maintaining diversity, inclusion and equality at work. And in the interest of greater gender balance, they've now got a male author on board too, namely Sue's partner, Mark Edwards. Mark is a long-standing Sunday Times journalist of 25 years, including over a decade as chief music critic. And he's also a qualified mindfulness coach who trains businesses in diversity and inclusion, as well as leadership. Uh, as a journalist, he began his career writing on magazines, including The Face, Arena and GQ. Uh, he's also just launched another book this year. You've been very busy, Mark. Uh, this one's called The Tower of Bowie, 10 Lessons from David Bowie's Life to Help You Live Yours. Uh, but let's just talk about belonging for now. Um, thank you both very much for taking time out of your busy schedules to come on the podcast. Um, it's a very interesting book. Um, each chapter um, is full of interesting insights and anecdotes and stories, but also interestingly ends with um, a series of exercise and um, thought-provoking um, things, if you like. Um, so I guess, Sue, first of all, who is this book really aimed at? Well, thanks very much for having us on the podcast. Um, the Belonging book, the idea of it, came out of the book tour that we did for The Glass Wall. So Catherine and I did over 150 talks and very often at the end of the talks one of the women in the room would put their hand up and say I'd like a question I'd like to ask a question of the organizers of the talk not Sue and Catherine can I just say looking around the room where are all the men and the organizers of the talk would say well this is a women's network and we just wanted to have the women here and here's a chance for you to think about the the glass wall issues the barriers in the workplace and then this woman would say well okay but if there's no men here, if it's only women here, how is anything going to change? And we started to think about this and and we also, of course, started to think about diversity beyond um, women, but in terms of every single group that is underrepresented in senior management and in the boardroom and why this was. And we came to the conclusion after talking to people and doing some research that one of the big issues is that the current inclusion industry manages to pretty much make the men who are still currently in power holding those boardroom seats holding those top jobs in media and advertising very frequently make them feel excluded and so this book is absolutely for everybody and we think that the only way that we're going to get change to happen because as you'll know from reading the book over six billion pounds a year is spent on diversity and inclusion initiatives worldwide I'm a media person at heart, you know, deep down. I like, a, I like to understand return on investment. The return on investment for change isn't that great. And 
I think the reason for that is because what you need to create that change is extreme ownership of diversity and inclusion, extreme ownership of creating a sense of belonging. And that means from every seat in the organisation. And that includes the men in the boardroom, of course. So it's primarily is it primarily aimed at, I guess, white male CEOs who are primarily still in those positions of power and are able to do something about it? It's aimed at everybody that is working in an organisation in the UK. But one of the points of the book is to make it very clear that everybody needs to take responsibility for it, including those men that you've just talked about, that this isn't something that they can delegate or defer. And one of the findings of the research which was carried out for us by Donata is that only one in two people in the UK believe that their boss takes personal responsibility for diversity and inclusion. So in other words, they don't see it as a key priority. If you ask the same question um, about profitability or about um, you know returns for shareholders, I think you'd find that most people would believe that their boss took personal responsibility for this. From the research in the book, the marketing and PR community, nearly half of us have witnessed harassment or bias or inappropriate behaviour at work and I've certainly I've been in a conversation where I've said you know we need to make a bigger thing about these initiatives and someone said to me I'm sure it was supposed to be a joke but someone said to me you just don't want to drive all the fun out of the industry do we and my question for everybody out there is well who's having fun here after the glass wall was published I was having a conversation with one COO of a large company who said to me you know, I've I've looked at your books. Let me tell you, you're completely wrong about this, you know, banter issue. He said, I've checked with the girls in my team and they find my jokes very funny. <laughs> and I said, look, look, let's can we just unpick this gently? So you've spoken to some of the women in your team who are reliant on you for pay rises and promotions <laughs> and for well-being. And you've asked them if they find your jokes funny and you're and, and, and you're and you're you're unsurprised that that they find you hilarious just it's about empathy some of this is about empathy and empathy in the true sense which is not feeling sympathy for each other but truly imagining what it's like to be in somebody else's shoes which is a difficult thing to know to do but you know you know I'm a planner I'm a media planner that's also the task of media planning and advertising planning and creative is to really get ourselves in the shoes and empathise with the people who we're selling to on behalf of our clients. We need to use that facility for each other as well. And then there will be a better kind of workplace for everybody. And um, in fairness, Mediacom, to its credit, actually last summer did launch um, this inclusive planning initiative, didn't you, to um, ensure that diverse audiences um, as a priority are sought after on media plans. Um, Mark, um, I'm very interested in um, the work that you do when it comes to training um, organisations on diversity inclusion. Um, when you're speaking privately um, to agent to business leaders about this, what are the, the key problems or roadblocks if you like to um, instilling a more diverse workplace um well i think one of the and sue's already touched on this i think the the more, the more we look at this subject the more we talk about this book the more work we do in this area i think that the key thing is that it has to start at the very top it has to start with the ceo if the ceo does not have a vision of a diverse and inclusive organization then things are going to move too slowly because that's where all the people in the middle take their signals from. Do I have to take this seriously or is this just something that HR department's doing and I've got to meet some targets but it's not that important? Until the people at the very top take ownership of this, it's too easy for people to not do anything about it. And that I think is where the really hard work is going to be. So. Um, I do, as, a, as someone who does a lot of training and coaching, I do like a model or an equation or a formula. Uh, and I talk a lot about the change equation. And the change equation is, says that in order for change to happen, dissatisfa you have to have dissatisfaction with the present situation, times a vision of the future, times 
first steps that can actually be taken have to be greater than the resistance. Now we've got the dissatisfaction, that's evident, but there hasn't been enough change. So I mean, because that equation is times, not plus, if any of those three things are not very high, then that side of the equation is not going to overcome the resistance. And I think we need to increase both of the other elements. We've got dissatisfaction with the present situation. I don't think we've got a strong enough vision of the future. And I don't think people are talking enough about what are the actionable first steps to get there. What we've got at the moment, and it's absolutely necessary and completely understandable, is we've got to focus on fixing the problems. This is behavior that's inappropriate. This, these are outdated and, uh, and well, always inappropriate ways of behaving and we need to fix that. Now that's absolutely necessary, but it won't be enough to drive change unless somebody gives a positive vision of the future and talks about how to get there. So you need people at the very top to create that vision and make it clear that they are going to make it happen. And obviously, um, this book, the way that it's written, it seems that, you know, if you're in charge of any sort of organisation, um, you will get a lot of insights from it. But I'm, I'm wondering, particularly in our field, if I can lump our industries of journalism and advertising slash media together, the more creative industries, do you think that we've got a particular diversity problem because of the way in which... Networks are so important in the way in which not just pe hiring um, and people move up in organisations, but just agency cultures. One of the big things that we've found um, over the last year in lockdown, working from home life, is agencies have really struggled to, um, you know, instill, develop agency culture while everyone's working, you know, in, from their bedrooms and the like. But when it comes to diversity, and we're trying to actually inject new thinking new types of people with new people with different ideas how is it do you, is there this this natural tension between creative companies who want to keep hold of an identity a culture versus opening it up and having it be more messy do you, do you find that in the companies that you speak to mark that creative might be might struggle more than others i think the first thing that i would want to say is that although this industry has a lot of issues here working as I do across different industries, you know, manufacturing, finance, whatever, there are some industries or there are some companies within those industries where this subject isn't even on the agenda yet, which sounds unbelievable after, you know, the last year in particular. Which ones? I'm not going to name companies. You're such a journalist, Omar. <laughs> Give us a hint. Which ones are the worst? Um... Okay, which ones are the best? I mean, I, 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 I can speak from some of our conversations that we had at the glass wall, which is that we, we, were, we went down very well in the legal sector and in the city. So there was a demand there. And I think, I think that, you know, they're, they're making efforts, but that they have got a um, heritage of being very successful at working in a certain way and they're having to open up another in, in another way that's a that's a that's a good comparison though isn't it because legal you you you've got a very clear um pathway for people to get into um, law firms and to progress to partner or um various other career paths um but whereas advertising and more creative industries it's it's softer than that and networks do matter don't they so i come back to you mark it it is do we have a particular problem in the creative industries? Um, I mean, your point about sort of holding on to the existing culture. Now, it's a sort of natural instinct to hold on to what you've got if it's been successful. But it's not a good instinct because we know the world's changing rapidly around us and you need to change and evolve. So I think that the idea is that what you want to do is introduce people who will expand your culture. You don't necessarily want to change it completely, but you don't always want to hire people who are going to quote fit in and that's you know become quite a loaded uh, phrase now of course you want people to fit in to a certain extent you don't want people who are going to be uh, antagonistic you don't want other people to just immediately leave but what you want is that they don't fit in completely you want them to add something you want them to feel that they can be themselves and bring themselves in and that they are expected to do that and expected to just gently evolve the culture. 
So um, ideas like reverse mentoring uh, are very powerful for this. If, if you can get companies to understand what reverse mentoring is and you can get the, the leaders to understand that it's a two-way street, to have relatively junior people in direct contact with relatively senior people and giving the senior people the benefit of their you know their new ways of thinking new ways of looking at thing and at things and their energy that can be a way to accelerate that process or even just to make it comfortable for the leadership that they can feel that they know what's going on and they're part of it and they understand it rather than it's something that's happening to their company Mm. This this point about fitting in, I want to explore that a bit more because particularly um, in the client service industry, um, Sue, have you have you found over the years that because uh, I frankly I do people do say this to me privately um, from both ends, people on the receiving end and people who talk about the from a leadership position the problems in instilling a more diverse workforce is that in a client facing industry they worry that if a person doesn't speak the right way if they don't look the right way if i dare say if they've even not been to some of um, the right schools and um, membership of certain clubs the clients won't see them as credible they won't speak the same language they won't be able to to close that deal when um, a, when a big review is is in the offing um so do is there still that mentality among uh senior leadership and agencies that frankly we're a client-facing industry and we need to do the best for our company and if it means if our clients happen to be a load of middle-class white men then we need to be like that as well well i don't know any client certainly that i'm speaking to and i speak to a few you know quite a lot of them who hasn't got diversity inclusion and belonging on their agenda as well so it is a surprise if businesses are still saying that because it sounds to me like an, an excuse. And look, everybody needs experience to deal with a situation that requires experience. That's that's you know that's a that's a, 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 an obvious thing to say. You know, you don't march in off the street, whatever your background, and close a deal with a multi-million pound company you know that requires a certain amount of coaching and training and experience to do that but I think our clients are very open to freshness and very concerned about it and it's very much on their agenda and I get you know the ones I'm speaking to it's not on the only on the HR agenda it's on the agenda of chiefs of marketing um, both in terms of how they represent their advertising but also who's working on the campaign who's working on the on the um, behind the scenes so I think it's very much on the client's agendas as well and I I do believe that this whole fitting in and fitting the culture has actually backfired it's been a very big thing that people have talked about for the first part of this century which is you know cultural fit good cultural fit now you might find good people to fit your culture but great people will expand your culture and one of the things that I've always said about um, senior team at Mediacom is that what we want is we want people who will add to our record collection or playlist. I used to say record collection, now I have to say playlist, not just duplicate it. And it's an easy mistake to make. It's, it's easy to think, you know, I'm really good at my job. My boss is, you know, your boss says to you, Omar, we're going to promote you. Good. But what we need you to do is we need you to, good, <laughs> and we're going to give you, we need you to find someone who's going to take on your current responsibilities. So you need to find someone to, to, to you know, deputise for yourself so that we can promote you. It's a very basic human instinct to think, well, I know I'm really good at my job, don't I? Because I'm getting promoted. So if I find someone who's exactly like me, and very often that translates to looks like, sounds like me, um, apes my behavior really fits in then that's the right thing to do and actually it's exactly the wrong thing to do and what everybody should be trying to do is bring in difference bring in diversity make sure that you're accepting of difference um you know in in an interesting and in a good way um because as matthew side says in rebel ideas that's where the genius ideas come through that lead to step changes and genuine transformation as opposed to a steady slide of things not being quite as good as they used to be and at, at the moment 
we are all in need of reimagination and transformation because of the disruption that's that's afflicting our sector. So I hope that that's not being used as a reason because I don't think it's a reason. I think it's an excuse. And um, the the book's interesting in the sense that um, you've got these exercises at the end of each chapter. Um, why? Wh- wh- explain to the listener what do these exercises entail and why did you decide to include them, Mark? Well, I personally, there's sort of two kinds of business books that I don't really like. And one is one that just gives you the theory. Uh, you know, you should be more creative. Off you go, be more creative. You know, and the other one is the kind that sort of says, oh, here's how Apple did it, now go and do it the same, which is entirely post-rationalised and actually not how Apple did it. You know, it's how you think Apple did it if you if you start from the end point and work back. And I think that um, going back to my change equation, actionable first steps, I think if you want people to change their behaviour, you it, it's helpful to give them not just a direction, you should do more of X, but actual instructions on how to do more of X. Um, So, you know, not enough. I don't think it's enough to say to people, you should be a good ally. You know, if people say inappropriate things in a meeting, you should call it out. Yes, you should call it out. That's not easy, especially if the person who's done or said the inappropriate thing is much more senior than you are. You are going to be anxious, scared. You're possibly also going to be very angry. Uh, at what's going on. You've got to have a lot of different agendas flashing through your head. I should call this out. I want to defend and support and protect the person who might be upset by this. I want to stop this behaviour. I want to sense for the rest of the room, how did everyone else feel about this? Am I the only person who thinks this is offensive? You've also got your self-interest, inevitably. How is this going to affect my relationship with the senior person if I call this out and on and on and on and that's a difficult place for someone to therefore speak up in a way that will change the behaviour. As a trainer and a coach I think the most important thing in that instance is can you do something that will change the future behaviour. Some people might disagree about that. They might say no the most important thing is you tell the person off or they might say no the most important thing is you support Uh, other people in the room who might be affected by it. Those are all really, really important too. But in terms of can we create lasting change and improvement, I, I am choosing to believe that the most important thing is that you change that person's behavior, the person who said the inappropriate thing. And you don't do that by just telling someone they've done something wrong. You do it by, first of all, giving them the chance to understand that they might have done something wrong themselves. And you do that by giving them the room to change and to uh, apologise, not by pushing them onto a defensive place where most human beings, once they're on the defensive, do not act in a positive way and do not change. They dig themselves in deeper. So um, I think it is helpful to give people instructions on such areas as How can you disagree with someone without it turning into a huge row? So the exercises are in areas like that. How can you challenge somebody who's senior to you, you know, without um, just causing uh, havoc and chaos to your career? So uh, I like to put that stuff in there. And it's not like a foolproof formula, but it's at least suggestions uh, that some people might not have thought of themselves. So they're mainly in the kind of area of emotional intelligence. What is a way that you could say this that is most likely to get a positive response rather than start an argument or just make somebody dig even deeper into their position, which you don't want them to be in? I suppose it um, it demands a lot of um, self-control or control on people's behalf if they're actually going to engage in potentially a a mode of conflict like that. Mark, how how important do you think, um, we've got a couple of minutes left, how important do you think um, mindfulness is? Uh, obviously, as a mindfulness coach, uh, you're going to tell me very important. But um, I wanted, to, is, is mindfulness every, for everyone? Are we talking about meditation? What, what, what does it mean in practice? Well, mindfulness really is, um, it's Buddhist meditation. And it was developed in the 70s, um, primarily by a guy called John Kabat-Zinn in America. And he wanted to bring 
Buddhist meditation into prisons and into hospitals and he knew if he said I'd like to do that people would laugh at him so he called it mindfulness-based stress reduction and people went yeah we need stress reduction so they brought it in but when you get to the class you find out oh it's meditation so it's kind of a trick um, but it's worked very well um, so really it's meditation and it's based on Buddhist psychology and the point about Buddhism is although it's called a religion it's not based on doctrines or rules it's certainly in the West it's based on strategies the the thrust of Buddhism is here is a way to use your mind so that you and the people around you will suffer less give it a try so that's what the essence of mindfulness is and the way in which most people explore it is through meditation and I personally as you can imagine would suggest that everybody should meditate uh, and especially people who go oh I can't do it my mind's too busy I just can't do it because that is like going to the gym and then coming home and saying well I shouldn't go to the gym because I can't lift the biggest weight in the gym it's like no, of course your mind's busy that's why you need to meditate nobody is calm uh, at the beginning of a meditation so I think mindfulness and meditation help to improve your relationship with your thoughts they help you not to get rid of your feelings owning your feelings are important but they help you to feel your feelings in a more authentic way and they help you to understand who you actually are and who the people around you are and what your relationship with those people should be uh, so I'm obviously a, a huge proponent of it and everybody should try it and it would make the workplace kinder and more respectful and more empathetic i think it's a fascinating topic uh, full disclosure um i have been meditating myself for about two and a half years now and um yeah it's it's very difficult but um you it's worth sticking at it because you do notice um a change in your well-being and um i, I in general um i i would agree with you very much but we should definitely do a future episode on this because um there's a, there's a lot to it and um, I think it's actually a really interesting question of is mindfulness practice beneficial for everyone and how are the best ways to get into it? Because I do think there are a lot of different answers to that. Um, but that's all the time we have for now. Thank you so much, Sue and Mark, for joining us today. Uh, the book is Belonging, the Key to Transforming and Maintaining Diversity, Inclusion and Equality at Work. Thank you both so much. Thanks so much for listening to the Campaign Podcast, brought to you by Campaign Magazine. Thanks again to Sue Uniman, Mark Edwards and Brittany Kiefer for coming on this week's show. This episode was edited by Lindsay Riley. And remember, you can get links to all the ads and other things we've talked about today in the show notes. And campaignlive.co.uk is the website where you can get all the latest industry stories and see all these ad campaigns we've been talking about. If you like what you hear, please subscribe on your favourite podcast player so you don't miss future episodes. And hey, why not leave a review? Please stay safe, be kind to one another and catch you next time. Bye bye.